governments need to realize that when you invest in health response or HIV response, it is an investment. It's not charity. It's an investment that has social and economic and health dividends. It's not charity at all because when you have a healthy population, productivity levels go up. When you have a healthy population, you do better with your human development indicators. So it's important that we rethink the investments into health as an investment that has returns. And those returns come in form of social, economic, and health returns. Hello, everyone. I'm Kemik Madamasi, a director at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation Africa Bureau, and you're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health, from the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent any of the agencies or organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Perfect. And on that note, we talked about it a little bit with the different ways AHF supports girls and young women. Now, education, it came up as a theme multiple times, but could we dive into the Girls Act initiative for a moment and unpack the different facets that are integrated there and tell us a little bit more about some positive outcomes of the program, how it works, who's benefited. I know that AHF is in 45 different countries, so I'm sure that the Girls Act is pretty much everywhere. So walk us through what that looks like. Okay, so with the Girls Act, so the thing about HIV response is that it needs to be multifaceted and multisectoral. Mm-hmm. It needs multifacetedness and multisectoral approaches for us to make headway. And and that was one of the things that recognized over time, especially when we started the Girls Act. So we started the Girls Act in 2016, and that was just in Africa. We started in four countries. We had done a quick research to find out what were the drivers of HIV amongst this group. And th- this was when the face of new HIV infections was prim- predominantly young women and girls. We've seen mm. a bit of shift based on the, the stats I gave earlier. So for AHF, it was not just about addressing HIV alone, but how do we address, one, what are the drivers? Two, amongst those drivers, what can we as an organization respond to so that we increase girls' chances of living healthier lives and, you know, and wholesome lives at the end of the day? So when we started Girls Act in 2016, we started with just four countries in Africa just as a pilot. And from four countries, Girls Act has grown now to 32 countries out of the 45 AHF countries that we have mm-hmm. globally. And the focus was putting the response, putting it at the heart of development because we realized that there were a lot of other issues that fed into the high rate. And I have mentioned some of them just so that I don't have to 
repeat myself. And, and, and some of those things, we, we looked at issues of poverty, lack of access to education, things like early marriage, gender-based violence. But even for girls who were not in school, but it was also the, under poverty was also the fact that girls didn't have, uh, or their families didn't have resources, or girls didn't have that capacity. They were not capacitated enough to either generate resources for themselves, or even their families were in very dire poverty states. And AHF figured that what we could do was to look for a comprehensive approach to this. We knew right off the bat that some of these issues were not within our core of our work as an organization. Mm, But that's also one thing about AHF and it's the vision around public health for us. Mm. It's seen, and, and that's why we advocate on public health issues because it's not, yes, we started off with HIV, but every year, every time we continue to see that there are implications for public health generally. And if we can address some of these public health issues, we can contribute greatly um, in strengthening health outcomes across the board. So we decided that we were going to focus on some of the key elements that we saw from the, the focus group discussions we had done. And that made us divide the program into four pillars. Remember I talked about it, it has to be multifaceted in its multi-sector um, approaches, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. And so what we did was we looked at issues of knowledge, skills, and education to be able to address that. And part of what we do under the Girls Act is for girls who are desirous of going back to school but for some reason have fallen out of, educa- out of school, AHF does provide scholarship through our programs. Mm-hmm. We do provide scholarship for girls In some cases, we provide scholastic materials so that girls can continue their education. Remember when I talked about the link between education and health, keeping girls in school and better health outcomes. So knowledge and skills and education is one of the pillars of Girls Act for us in the Africa Bureau and across. And that looked at scholarships, making it possible for girls to return to school. Now for girls who maybe for some reason are young mothers, you know, can't go back to school. What we provide is vocational training, strengthening their ability to generate their own income. Because of course, with the ability to generate income comes some level of power. Girls then do not have to depend on older men or on transactional sex to afford things like sanitary pads. Also under that as well is the bit about supporting girls, whether it's vocational training, social enterprises, equipping them with seed capitals to be able to start up their own business. And we've done that in a number of our countries, even in countries like Sierra Leone, we've been able to set up a social enterprise where girls do makeup, headgear, some of the things that are very common in their communities. And in places like Zimbabwe, we've been able to support girls who now do detergents. Some of them are able to sew uniforms for a school in the community. Um, So tailoring, baking, makeup, all of those things. So those are some of the ways financial literacy is also another thing that we support the girls with. Then career fair sessions as well, helping young people, not just girls, but young people to crystallize what their career path would be, you know, helping them make more informed choices. Then we also have another pillar which speaks to reducing HIV and STI infection Mm -hmm. rates. So that's 
creating opportunities for young women and girls to access cervical cancer screening, HIV testing, information around contraception, family planning. Another thing, again, is with the HIV and STI, so we do not, in as much as Girls Act is primarily girls, mm -hmm. we also engage the boys as well because we understand that there is a need to equip boys even with information around STIs. So we, we work, and, uh, and, and part of what we do even with that is also advocacy on policies that allow for young people to access sexual reproductive health services that actually safeguards their rights to these services, as well as comprehensive sexuality education, which is something that in the Africa Bureau we're currently championing now under the Protect the Child campaign, where we're calling and advocating to countries and parents and, and leaders on the need to make sexuality education available to young people so that they get the information that they need, which will equip them to make more informed and healthier choices so that they are also able to address, identify and address you know, harmful norms and discriminatory norms that that pre, uh, predisposes them to HIV, to be able to tackle that even at community levels, engaging communities and families as well. So under the HIV, reducing HIV and STI infections, we make sure, remember, we provide services. So we also ensure that young people are able to access services that they need, whether it's prevention services, whether it's testing services, whether it's, you know, screening, the relevant screenings, relevant information. We do some of this through even dialogues and communities, engaging communities on the importance of this. So we do that access to condoms. These are some of the things that we use working with young people just so that they're in a better position to protect themselves. Again, because the Girls Act is not only focused on preventing HIV and STIs, it also supports young women and girls who are within our care, who are already living with HIV, making sure that they have access to peer-to-peer -peer support. They're able to get, they're able to stay connected to care. Some even we do home visits, so pairs lead home visits to follow up on their fellow girls, just to make sure that you know they stay connected to treatment, increasing retention among them, adherence, just. A community of support, you know, making sure that they don't get fatigued, but, you know, they understand the importance of treatment. So that also we address that there's psychosocial support as well to be able to support um, those who are living positively. Another pillar, which is the final pillar, is building agency of young women and girls to champion their own causes. It is important that the approaches are people-centered, people-focused, largely driven by the people who are affected or at risk. And that's one of the things that we've done with the Girls Act is putting girls at the center of the intervention where we equip them and build their skills either in terms of leadership, in advocacy, understanding the policies and how it affects them as young people. But beyond that, we also create interface for them with people in power, the people who make these decisions, you know, creating an opportunity for them to engage with decision makers at all levels, but also create an opportunity for them to demand to be at the table when these decisions are being made so that they can also contribute from their perspective, their experience and their lived realities on ways that the policies, the laws, the, the strategies, the plans can be more responsive to their needs and more responsive to their realities as well. So we do that under the Girls Act because the goal is to build 
a generation of leaders who advocate for themselves even right from now. Because like young people would say, nothing for us without us. So we understand that in the Girls Act and for us, young women and girls and young boys at the center. So we've had opportunities for a number of them where they interfaced with members of parliament, you know, to raise issues that concern them and also walk, try to work with them to find solutions to them. So these are some of the ways that the Girls Act is responding. Again, it's focused in communities. It is centered in communities, starting from the health facility, even to the community. So we do have um, interactions even with guardians. So, so guardians, we have the parents um, and guardian dialogues and young people where we bring them together um, for you, to improve interaction between parents and their young ones in terms of health issues or conversations around sexual health or conversations around prevention or conversations around just changing some of the harmful norms in, in the communities that continue to put um, young women and girls at risk. For boys, we try to engage them as well in terms of, you know, role modeling, positive masculinity, and just, you know, making boys also champions and allies for improved health outcomes. So these are some of the ways. I would say, interestingly, we've also had in, in, in some of our, our countries outside of Africa where girls are learning to be mechanics as a way of, of empowerment. Right. And then another thing we do is also make, not just provide sanitary pads. We do provide sanitary pads for girls as part of ways to keep them in school. But we also champion a lot of advocacy efforts around making sanitary pads free for girls mm. who need it. So that there's no reason why a girl should not be able to go to school Right. or should be exposed to infections just because they can't afford a pad. So that's also another thing. Menstrual health is also another area that the Girls Act covers. And then GBV as well, gender-based violence, working with relevant partners to address issues of GBV, making sure that young girls who fall victims to rape can have access to things like post-exposure prophylaxis mm. and all of that. It's really great to hear how powerful and empowering I feel like these initiatives like Girls Act can be. So thank you so much for sharing that, Kemi. I think just beyond these community-based initiatives and interventions, you did mention briefly a bit about policy changes and you know how important policies can play in, in making change as well. Maybe if you could dive a bit deeper into what is the role of policy in addressing the HIV and AIDS epidemic, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa. Policies are very crucial. Um, remember, I did talk about earlier on about certain um, punitive laws, punitive mm -hmm. policies or criminalizing policies and the impact that they play. So we need to get to the point where the laws and the policies, and not just at the national level, but even at district level, local level, even in programs, we need to get to the point where we're able to promote favorable laws and policies. Because when the policies are favorable, when the policies... Another thing is, is making them responsive to the realities on the ground and to the needs of the communities. And, and part of that would also in, include involving the key communities in these policies, policy discussions, policy formulations, and all of that. We need to get the communities involved because if the policies, do, if we do not have an enabling environment by virtue of the policies that we have, we will continue to see these new infection rates that we're seeing will continue to see the disparities, the gaps, the inequalities that exist, and the dream and goal of, you know, 
putting an end to, like we say, a HIV AIDS free generation. That's not going to be possible if the laws continue to be continue to criminalize either key populations or if we still have policies in, in countries or laws in countries that do not speak against things like child marriage or early mm-hmm. marriage. That is going to make it difficult. So policy does play a very critical role when it comes to the HIV AIDS response. And it's one of the reasons why when we engage even at that level, it's always the need to call to attention the role that policies or laws play in, in, in the HIV AIDS response. Just recently, we've seen a number of laws that have come out, you know, either criminalizing same sex and those laws end up driving people down under. For example, we see cases where age of consent in a number of countries are still very low, which Mm. makes, and yet young people are picking up infections and the advocacy is around, can we increase um, the age of consent? So that way, a a young person, you know, can we have an age of consent that is favorable to a young person to be able to walk in and get testing services, to be able to walk in and get sexual reproductive health services? And that's one of the things that we are campaigning for, we are advocating for. So when we look at the policy landscape, we look, it's cross-cutting, you know, in te- both, and even in terms of implementation, there are instances where we have policies. I, I, for us, I think for us, we, we do have a lot of policies, but then you also find the bottleneck when it comes to implementation, implementing these policies and The question also is, a number of these policies, to what extent are they understood at the community level, at the grassroots level? Again, so there are issues of formulating the right policies, confronting the policies that are not favorable and changing them, removing them, or not enforcing them at all. But then there's also the bit about implementing, implementing policies. So where we do have favorable policies, what are the gaps in terms of implementation that we need to address. And we've seen some changes, but I would say that it's also the reason why we need to have those at risk or those affected to be at the table when discussions around these policies are made, because it allows for a more inclusive policy, a more responsive policy, and a more targeted policy that can help with with driving the change that we are hoping to see. So policy does play a very crucial role. I, I don't want to go into all the details in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're following the news and seeing some of the laws that we've had in recent times that, you know, it's, it's generating a lot of conversation on how we need to make our laws a bit more progressive and how to make the policies more progressive as one of the ways to strengthen public health response on the continent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Kemi, as we have this conversation, I can't help but there's a think of this quote that i often refer to because i think it's very salient in a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. and it's by an american philosopher his name is john dewey Mm -hmm. and what he what what the quote says is a problem well defined is a problem half solved Mm -hmm. so then if we approach the hiv aids epidemic as an hiv aids epidemic problem Mm -hmm. that's a problem too not understanding that it's actually more a human rights issue. Yes, it is. More so than it, a specific HIV AIDS issue. And if we don't have that reframing of it, then we end up focusing on the wrong things. There's a disconnect between the policy, the implementation, and the intended outcome. And we get this microcosm of what we're experiencing now. 
So I say that to say, taking everything into account of what we talked about in this conversation, what are some take-home messages you have for our audience? Where do we where do we go from here? Um, thank you, God, and and I, I really do like the quote um, that you just shared because um, I'm just looking at the future and what we are hoping to collectively achieve. We have so many taglines. And in AIDS by 2030, 1990, all of that. And, and they are good. But, but like you said, if we don't make sure that the responses actually address the needs, mm. and, and like when you talk about human rights, we need to look at a point where interventions have to come from a right-based approach, mm. respecting the fact that there are rights that should be safeguarded. And that also includes the right to health that, you know, and, and when we think of the fact that these, for example, some of the policies that we have and the implications they have on people's rights, either the right to access health services, either the right to health information, you know, we need to start thinking about interventions from a right-based approach. We also need to get to the point where there needs to be that political will. There seems to be the feeling that HIV is no longer a threat, but it is. The numbers tell us that it is still a threat. And we know what to do. We know what to do at government level. Another thing, again, is the need to strengthen community structures. So one of the things we're seeing is a shrinking of civil society space. And whether it's due to lack of funding, lack of capacity building. And the thing about civil society is, and community structures is that they do help in terms of accountability, to be able to promote accountability, to be able to ensure that the services get to those who need it. Because for a long time, since the fight um, against HIV, community structures and CSS structures have served as the backbone, making sure that um, people get the service that they need. But we also need to get to the point where we need to address and strengthen community structures. Strengthening those community structures, we need to ensure that people have access to innovative prevention approaches. And governments need to realize that when you invest in health response or HIV response, it is an investment. It's not charity. It's an mm -hmm. investment that has social and economic and health dividends. It's not charity at all. Because when you have a healthy population, productivity levels go up. When you have a healthy population, you do better with your human development indicators. So it's important that we rethink the investments into health as an investment that has returns. And those returns come in form of social, economic, and health returns. So that's one of the things that I want to leave with, with, with those of us who work in the space is the need to constantly engage governments and donors on the need to see this as an investment. Number two is we have to address and confront the inequalities the intersecting inequalities, the gender inequalities, we need to confront them. As long as they remain in place, 
there would be people who will be left behind as long as they remain in place. It's the same with the policies. We need to have, there's no reason why in 2023 we should be having policies or laws that are discriminatory. Hmm. So they, we need to have progressive laws and policies. When the laws are progressive, when they're respectful of the rights of individuals, it opens up opportunities for more people to seek care, to seek services, to not feel stigma, to not be stigmatized or discriminated against. So we need to have to actually get to the point where we are rethinking the policies and the laws that we make and making sure that they are responsive to the needs on the ground. But we also need to look at the inequities that exist in the governance health structure of the world. We cannot achieve much when it comes to addressing public health threats, even with HIV as a public health mm -hmm. threat, if we don't address the inequities that exist when it comes to the global governance health structure. So we have to get to the point, and that's one of the things that I would say as AHF, we've constantly advocated for. For example, the need to transfer technology know-how, especially to allow for the local manufacturing of vaccines, of diagnostics, therapeutics, to boost affordability and accessibility. There shouldn't be a reason why a continent, for example, like Africa, should be waiting in hand mm. for support or response to come from the rich countries. Africa has the ability and the resources to be able to generate and locally manufacture, but that cannot happen if pharmaceutical companies, for example, are not transferring technology or holding onto patents that should ensure that more people have access to the treatment that they need. So there's a lot, again, going back to reinforcing the need for multifaceted and multi-sectoral approaches. It shouldn't also be left to just the Ministry of Health. It has finance involved, it has gender, it has education. And then I would say lastly is the bit about integrating HIV services into other services as well, such as non-communicable diseases. It needs to be better forms of integration. Even mental health, that is an issue now that is coming mm. up. There needs to be better integration of HIV into the services as well. And then when it comes to young people, whether it's young women and girls or young boys, it is to no longer see them as beneficiaries or recipients, but rather as key stakeholders deserving to be on the table and with a voice that needs to be heard. So I, this, this for me would be the key action points that I would leave this podcast today. It's just saying that we need to rethink a lot of our approaches and that's even at local level at national level at regional level and global level hiv its response health response has to be more holistic we've made some progress but there's still a lot that we need to do when it comes to turning the tide on hiv it's not over yet and, and that's one thing we keep saying it's not over there's still so much to do and it is possible some of the gains that we've seen demonstrate to us that it is possible, it can be done, but it would require us to concertedly work on it through different creative and innovative approaches, some of which I have responded to. Wonderful, Kemi. There's several things that I'll leave this uh, discussion with. And the one from a recency buyer's perspective, I, wrote, I made a note of that. Whenever we allocate resources to advance uh, health equity, it is not 
it's an investment, not charity. I like that. So I'm going to, if, if I have your permission, I'm going to steal that from you. That's fine. I, I actually, we actually, that's one thing that our president at AIDS Healthcare Foundation has constantly reiterated. You know, I like that. We need to see, we need to see it as an investment, not charity. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.